Holy and gracious God, we thank you for gathering together. That we can sing vibrantly uh, with the brass and with the songs that we know. Uh, praises to you and thanksgiving. And we might come and continue to hear a word from you. Having heard your scriptures read, we also pray that we might hear a word through the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. And so in all of it, we pray that it would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Um, so I, I have three little ones, and uh, they're ages nine, seven, well, actually 10, eight, and five. Uh, Got to keep track of the birthdays. But I have three little ones, and so I live my life through children's movies. I mean, the only movies, if you ask me about movies that I've, I've watched lately, they're all children's movies. I, I like, actually bumped up to Star Wars the other day, and I was so excited because it was like a movie that I would have chosen to watch on my own. But I live my life through children's movies. And I, I talk about that because one of the movies that my kids really liked or did like when it came out was the movie Trolls. Have you ever seen the movie Trolls? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, is it Trolls or what, what's this? No, one of them where they sing. Is that the one where they sing? Yeah, yeah, the one where they sing. And so they sing a lot in the movie. And in the second movie, they are a pop group. There's a bunch of trolls with bright hair, and they dance around, they sing, you know, all sorts of Justin Timberlake songs and all kinds of pop music. And it's so exciting and happy if you put on family pop on the radio or on your, like, Apple Music or Spotify or whatever it is, it will come up, and all those songs are what they play in the movie Trolls. And so in the movie Trolls, they uh, have to move over to different lands, and they encounter different trolls in the second movie. And in this one, they encounter trolls that did something very bizarre for these little pop trolls. They sing different music. And the first place they go, and it stands out to me, is the first place that they go is they go to the land of country music. And all of a sudden they get there and they have all the like country music trolls are like lined up and they're singing a song and it's like kind of like a ho-hum song talking about like losing a loved one and the rain and all this stuff. And the pop trolls can't handle it. They're like, what is this gloom and doom all about? This isn't music. And so then they get up like their like top 20s pop hits and like they combine all of the 2010 to 2020 songs into one song that were super popular. And they get thrown in prison for throwing, playing the wrong type of music. But I can relate, I, when I was watching that movie, I could relate 100% to the pop trolls because I, I'm sorry, I cannot handle country music, okay? Okay, first of all, I'm sorry. It is, I love like Johnny Cash and some of the other stuff like that, but country music is not my jam. I think that was part of my animosity towards, uh, and I, <laughs> I'm just gonna, you guys don't throw any tomatoes at me, okay, I promise, is that part of my animosity towards the South in general, because it was like lumped into country music when I was growing up. It had that like slang in the language. I grew up in Minnesota. I was a Yankee, you know, like that was my world that I lived in. It was Minnesota, and I couldn't imagine going to the South. To make it worse, I went to a summer camp uh, the summer in between my junior and senior year, and I went to Windy Gap, North Carolina, and I interacted with all people from the South, and it was a good learning experience, but one that made me kind of re-emphasize I will never, ever live in the South. Never, ever. I, I even told people, I will never live in the South, period. Never live in the South. Fast forward, the place, aside from just this year, that have lived the longest, guess where it was? And I, don't, I mean, some of you might not consider Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the South. I know, I know, you're, you're purists out there. But 
That is definitely south of the Mason-Dixon line, friends. Okay, I'm just letting you know. And it is the south. And as I have lived in that area and that neck of the woods, you know what I found out? There are magnificent people there. In fact, our dearest friend, still to this day from there, is we call her our Southern Belle. She grew up in like rural North Carolina, and her name was Katie, and she was just like the exact opposite of my wife Ashley, who grew up in like Denver and LA area, like metropolitan areas, completely different. Katie would talk about her dad making hoop sausage, and Ashley was like, what in the world are you talking about? I have no idea what that is, and if you don't know what that is, ask a friend from rural south, and you might learn. But all that to say, our dearest and deepest friends, and we grew tremendously during that time. In fact, we love and we look back at Raleigh, Durham area, and not just because our misconceptions, which we had about the people of the south and the south in general, but the ways in which it changed us changed us in regards for hospitality. It changed us in regards to pace. It would drive, I, I wouldn't be able to stay in Hawaii any longer because I grew up in Minnesota and went to California. And what drove me nuts about the South when I first went there is it would take an hour to get through the checkout line because they would just start talking story forever to the lady in the checkout line. You're like, why are you still talking? Like just check it and pay it and go, right? Fast forward to Hawaii, and auntie and uncle are talking story up, you know, up a storm, right? So I'm thankful for the ways it changed my level of patience to allow me to live in this place that I love. I'm saying all of that because it's a backdrop. You're like, where is the pastor going today? I'm saying all that is somewhat of a backdrop of the Apostle Paul and his words in the, the Philippians. The place that you don't want to go and don't want to interact with because it's the people that are driving you bonkers, right, is the exact place that the Apostle Paul finds himself with the Philippians. He had gone around and started all of these churches on a good note, the grace of God that's been given to you freely, freely. And then they gone and messed it up. But I started adding on different things and started fighting with each other. It's like the church that can't help but like, you know, be on the right track and then get lost in the midst of arguing back and forth and being nasty with each other and telling each other that you got to like, you know, be a better Christian by getting circumcised and by following the Torah and doing all these things. And, and Paul is all the time just trying to start more churches. He was so excited to do that, but he had all of these churches that keep on creating these problems. And the last thing the last thing that he wanted to do was go to that place and to be with those people. But one of the things, last week we talked about, we're in the season of grace and gratitude. And we talked last week about how grace is given freely to us. And in fact, that the Apostle Paul makes it so clear that those of us that are high achievers and say, you know, well, we earn things and we got to do these things, we feel this pressure, those of us who are high, achiever, high achievers, Paul says that it is not your doing. And he makes it as clear as day and says, it is a gift from God. That grace is a gift from God. And that's his direct message to all of his people, including us today and that this group of Christians was starting to argue again about why, who, how do we earn this back? How do we earn our place? How, what are the things that we're supposed to do? And, and Paul's like, you know, it's driving him crazy. 
And so one of the things we talked about last week is that we need to learn to accept this for ourselves, that God has given you a seat at the table and that you're unique and that God's grace is over you. And it, we said it was something that you need to learn to accept in others. Uh, in 2005, a, uh, a researcher named Christian Smith researched the youth across America and how he did that and their religiosity, specifically their Christian religiosity. And the way he did that was he would interview the youth and ask them questions about their faith. And essentially, across all denominational, like kind of periods, whether it's Catholic or Lutheran or Pentecostal, that what he found out from asking youth was that American youth, and at least in 2005, had what he called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, which essentially means that what faith is about is about being good. Faith is also about helping me feel good. And then deism is that there's a God out there that wants us to do those things. That God wants us to be good, to feel good, and to, you know, know that there's a God. Like, that's, that's what they gathered from the youths there. And when you think about that, I can't tell you how many people kind of have that sort of mentality, right? Uh, I, which is the idea that like, it's just about being good. It's just about welcoming people to the table. It's just about being friendly. It's just about feeling good together. And we love songs, and sometimes it's easy. We love songs like Draw the Circle Wide or All Are Welcome or Every Day, you know, these the pop songs. And, and I love these songs, right? But as I read the scripture today, and I kind of did some of the searching around it, I got challenged a little bit. This is going back to my story uh, about North Carolina, but my challenge for a little bit was a challenge by a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite theologians, and he talks about this thing called cheap grace. Cheap grace. And, and I'm adding that to today's conversation because I think it's essential. And he says cheap grace is the grace that's just thrown out there. You know, I, in some regards, if you were here with us last week, if you weren't listen to on the podcast, threw out cheap grace to you. And that's to say, all are welcome, no matter what, there's a seat at the table, draw the circle wide, God's love is for you, right? That's grace. It's important, but if it stays there, it can become what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap. Because Dietrich Bonhoeffer was aware of Paul's words about grace. Because Paul doesn't just say, you are loved by God, God is with you, period. He takes it one step further in his actions and in his expectations. And that is to add on what he would say is humility and service of others. Humility and service of others. And that's where Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say the difference between cheap grace and true grace is the true grace costs you something. You personally. And what he means by that is it will change you. It will change you. It will change you through the cost of your time, of your energy, of giving back. And undergirding all of that is that when we experience God's grace, it's not required for our faith. Like, you're not earning salvation with this, friends. But it seems to be the flow that when you receive God's grace, you respond to it. 
you respond to it by serving, by humbling yourself, and here's the kicker. You ready? And being willing to be changed. Being willing to be changed. Because the Apostle Paul, when he looked at those people, the Philippians, they're driving him nuts. They're the place he doesn't want to go. You know how he begins? I give thanks whenever I think of you and all the ways that you admire me and all the ways that I have been coupled to you. I give thanks. And I don't think he's just saying that to say it. He truly was giving thanks for these people. He was leading out of thankfulness, and he was knowing that the interaction, although it was going to be difficult, was going to change him, because it did. Paul was a, a uptight, you know, like, if you're, like, going back to the South, right? You know, he's the one that wore the three-piece suit Sunday mornings, right? Like, he was the Pharisee, blameless, he says, followed all the rules. He had the bow tie and everything to go with it. And yet, he found himself hanging out with the people that never, ever, 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 ever would have been allowed in the synagogue to worship the living God. He found himself with the Gentiles, the people that ate meat, the people that did all kinds of crazy stuff. And he finds himself trying to correct them and work with them. And in the midst of it, he is changed himself. Because Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he wrote The Difference Between Cheap Grace and True Grace, you know, a lot of people like to think of it as a sort of abstract, like, oh, we just give or we do stuff, you know, like we have to sacrifice something. But I like to make it like really down and dirty that Dietrich Bonhoeffer formed his theology in the Bronx. <laughs> he grew up and was in the midst of the, pre uh, the prestigious academic community of Germany. Like, he was the protege student. Everyone knew he was going to go places, going to be the best theologian that had ever lived. And then he moved to the Bronx and spent time there. And it's as he was there, he was changed by the people there and the faith there. And so when he talks about true grace versus cheap grace, cheap grace is the grace that says, draw the circle wide, all are welcome, but make sure, you know, like, you at least comb your hair when you come, right? Or make sure, you know, you, like, check yourself just a little bit in the language you're using, or make sure you, you know, it's, it's the add-on that meets our expectations. True grace, he would say, is the grace that draws into community, and allows that community to change us. And I, and I use the story of the music, and I use the story of North Carolina in hopes that you might think of the places that you said in your mind, I would never go. Right? I am not going to go there. I am not going to do that. Because I look back at those times in my life when I, I said, I'm not going to go there. And then I end up there somehow by God's mystery. And then my life is changed for the better. Because you know what? You could go to a place that you're not supposed, that you don't want to go. And you know what you could do every single day of that place? God, why am I here? 
these people are the worst. They say y'all, they uh, cook this thing called grits, I don't like it, they eat all kinds of nonsense, I don't understand what they're saying half the time, right? You could literally live in a place or be in a place in your life where all you can do is think about the negative. And I promise if you go to that place and all you can think about is, you know, the language they're using and how, like, you know, like, no one seems, everyone's rude to you or, you know, like, all the things, right? There may be legitimate things. You will not find yourself changed after that. And in fact, you'll find yourself probably a more unhappy person after that experience. Instead, the Apostle Paul says what? To respond to God's grace is to think on these things, whatever's true, whatever's commendable, whatever's good. Think on these things because God will change you, is what he's trying to say, as you think on the good of that, all that surrounds you. This is a, uh, a scripture reading that married couples, for whatever reason, they love to have it uh, in their wedding. And I don't think as they come, right, you know, like they're ready for what, was, what that means in their life. Because I, I always kind of like laugh. I'm like, I love this scripture for weddings, right? You know, because it's like, think on these things, right? Because one of the things, you know, if you're in a, a partner relationship or even just living in the same house, it is easy to think about the wrong things, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, you know? It's the things that your husband forgot to do, you know, like that didn't switch the laundry or didn't do the dishes or that to-do list just keeps on getting longer, not shorter. I don't know what's happening. Or it's the rudeness of the tone or it's the child that just always talks back or it's, you know, whatever it is, it's so easy to think on those things. But we know that the more you think on those things, what? The more you dwell on it, the more that like anger festers, the more you don't feel good about yourself or the relationship. And you know, this isn't new, right? I mean, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul was telling a people what? Think on these things. That's good. You know, there's like research studies. I like just the other day, I was like, you know, meditation and gratitude, right? Like meditation and gratitude is the Apostle Paul's jam. He was doing it for 2,000 years ago, right? And if you just Google meditation and gratitude, you know what they're finding out in the past 10 years of study and research? That if you wake up in the morning, we have an aptitude to think negatively. It's just like, they, like the research is showing, like, you will think about the negative. It's just like, kind of like the way your brain works. But if you wake up in the morning and spend like five minutes just meditating and then spending time journaling about things you're thankful for and grateful for, it like reconnects, and I'm, I'm not a medical person at all, reconnects things in your brain. You can talk to Kevin Laka, who plays a harmonica, he knows more about the brain. But it reconnects things in your brain so that you will experience joy more in the day. That you will literally be happier if you spend time meditating and thinking on these things. And thinking on these things. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul is saying what now 2,000 years later, researchers are starting to realize. That the way you think, and intentionally thinking on these things, makes you a happier person. But I don't think it stops with like the therapy level of it, like the therapeutic deism. I think 
that what Paul really was driving for is it not only makes you a happier person, but it makes you a person capable of being changed. And I think that that is where the power of God is at work in our lives. When we think about what we're thankful for, when we respond to God's grace that all are welcome and do the hard work of accepting and thinking about the good around us, you will be changed. And just like when I look back on my time in North Carolina, I can't imagine the work of God at work in my life without the people and the communities and what I had learned from my time in the place that I said I would never go. So how do you wake up each morning? How do you do the diligent practice throughout the day with your spouse or with those that are in your house or the people that are dry, your neighbor that just drives you bonkers of thinking on these things? Whatever is good and commendable and worthy. And as we do it, we're going to start to learn a little bit more about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about with true grace. Grace that costs you something because it will change you. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we thank you that you transform our hearts. And you often put us in places that we tell you in our prayer life that we will not go. Do not send me to Nineveh. Jonah said. But somehow, by your grace, we find ourselves in unfamiliar territory with people we would rather not hang out with. Help us be a people that sees your grace in our lives and the lives of those around us. And help us be a people that doesn't just say God's love is for everyone, but enacts it. By thinking on what is good and what is true and what is worthy, ultimately by being willing to be changed. Because as you give us your grace, we give you our thanks. And we learn to say, blessed be your name, whether it's the joys in our life or the negatives in our lives. And as we give thanks and see thankfulness in others, we look back on our journeys and say, you have done miraculous things in our lives. That's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.